be yours. Listen, and all you desire will be yours. Welcome to Spider-Man and the Secret Wars. Prepare for battle. It was a defensive exercise. Yeah, best defense is a good offense. Or is it the other way around? Welcome to Prattle World. I am your host, the ever-amazing, ever-spectacular Spider-Dan. And in this podcast, I spotlight entertainment's best-kept secrets that a mainstream audience may find boring. And welcome to Secret Defenders, where I task my guests to defend their favourite movies that are underrated, infamous, or obscure. And we have one of the original guests on the podcast back after far too long a time. We talked about Jaws exploitation last time, and we're going in a totally different direction entirely. Um, T.D. Velasquez is back to share his opinions and defend one of the lesser-known Quartermass films and, and or serial, whichever you, you watch of this particular version, T.D. Velasquez, you're back. How the bloody hell are you? I'm so happy to be back, Dan. Hello, sir. It is an absolute thrill to be here. Yes, your exploitation. Um, <laughs> a word I don't often use, but I got to use it on your show, and I don't often get to rattle on about Orca. So it, was, <laughs> it was an absolute privilege, and here I am, and, and you've given me the chance to talk about the Quartermaster Inclusion and one of my favourite writers, Nigel Neal. So, you know. I am indebted to you, and I'm just thrilled. How are you, fella? I'm very good. I'm very good. I'm I'm, in, I'm still enjoying your podcast, and now the podcast starts, a classic, uh, which I've been on many, many a time. I've left a lovely, lovely review for it as well. But anyway, we're here to talk about uh, Nigel Neal, because it is, as you, as you stated just before we started, his centenary this year, his birthday's just passed. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about the great man himself, the the science fiction writer, and and your link and how you found him and his work and and the whole Quatermass franchise. Fantastic, with absolute pleasure. There's if I have a purpose in life, Dan, it's to talk to people who don't know much about Nigel Neal about Nigel Neal. And um, thank you again for this outlet. And um, and by the way, thank you for your wonderful contributions to our podcast over the years. We thank you as an honorary host. You're always welcome. And, you know, for listeners to this podcast, you intrigued it about what we're about to discuss. You know, Dan did come on our show to talk about Halloween 3, which is a movie that, uncredited, was written by Nigel Neal. And one of the ways that I like to get into Nigel Neal is go, oh, you're a Halloween fan. Do you know who wrote Halloween 3? Because often people obviously <laughs> don't know. I mean, Halloween 3 could also be a secret defendant movie because it was... It's a cult movie, but it was despised for a long time. It's coming into its own, I think, as, as we've discussed, and, and I know you've discussed elsewhere. So, who was Nigel Neal? Basically, I like to think of him as the man who invented television, or invented television drama. He was born in 1922, and TV drama developed a bit differently in America and, and Britain. In America, TV dropped because they have Hollywood. And they have a, a massive kind of machine of making movies. And that that kind of has been in place since the early 19th, uh, 20th century. When TV came along, they started needing to make soap operas. They'd ma- basically make them like movies. Uh, they'd be made by you know people who directed maybe 
at low budget movies in those days when movies were just cranked out on tiny budgets to make a bit of money, different films every week and so on. And, and that would turn into the same engine that would produce endless soap operas and detective dramas and things like that. And they tended to be kind of like movies, but movies that had very little money. And dare I say, were not always made by people with a great amount of talent. They're like, I never want this guy to direct a movie for me again. Fine, we'll give him a job in television kind of thing. Um, <laughs> in Britain, it was quite different. Kind of post-war, you had TV starting up. We'd have radio for a bit longer. Um, and we also obviously have a, um, a great tradition of theatre in this country. And rather than, because we don't have the big film industry tradition, TV drama was like a weird thing, kind of halfway between theatre and radio, but with pictures. So they'd like film plays and they'd film radio scripts and not really know what to do uh, with the visual side of it. You know, it's mostly done live as well. These programmes were actors were actually speaking the lines and it was going out live and the audience, there was no editing, the audience would see any mistakes. It was all from studios. So Nigel Neal was a guy who, um, having grown up on the Isle of Man, initially thought he wanted to be an actor, so he went to RADA and he seemed to do quite well. But uh, in his 20s, he redirected his energies into writing and he had a very successful collection of short stories published which i've just bought in fact it's literally this week just been re-released it's called tomato pain and other stories by nigel neal been re-released in a beautiful hardback with an introduction by mark gatis um it was published in 1949 it won the somerset mom award for literature and it's one of only two books he ever wrote because just off the the back of that one book of short stories he was poached by the bbc a senior bbc guy basically had a, a limited amount of budget to find writers for tv productions and he spent all of it on paying nigel neal he <laughs> <laughs> it just it's like right we'll just get nigel neal's and, and nigel neal had to kind of sit there and and think uh okay so tv what what how does it work what i mean I remember an interview with him where he said they asked him to adapt the stage play and in the play uh, there was a conversation about an egg, like a, an uncooked egg. Two characters were talking about an egg and, and they were rehearsing it. Nigel Neal was looking through the camera and realised the picture quality was so low that you couldn't see that it was an egg. <laughs> so, so he had to insert a line of dialogue. Now listen here, this egg is a problem or whatever <laughs> Um, so it's things like that it's like how to be visual but not too visual because people have terrible tv sets and all that and he was involved in a, a couple of years worth of like adapting plays for tv and finding out what the problems were then in 1953 75 years ago they had a slot which opened up for a drama serial they didn't know what to fill it with they said to nigel neal do you have any ideas and he went uh no but give me a minute and he went away and, and came up with quite a mass experiment, which is the first kind of TV science fiction thriller serial. He never really thought of himself as a science fiction writer, but he was kind of picking things that seemed different and exciting to TV without going into too much detail about it, because I'm sure that will come up in conversation about what kind of stories he told. It was a massive hit. A couple of years later, the, the, the BBC encouraged him to write a follow-up serial, Quatermass 2, 
which is literally the first ever sequel with the number on wow. the end of the title. And the reason was because, A, he couldn't think of a better title, but also he had this kind of rigour and logic to his writing. If it's called Quatermass 2, that's got to make sense in some way to the story. So there is a rocket in the story called Quatermass 2. In right. the first Quatermass story, there had been a rocket. So this was the second rocket, and it's Quatermass 2. And, and then a few years later, Quatermass and the Pit. And then basically he just continued writing TV, and he developed this style, which is why I love him. He is a terrifying writer. He's a great writer of horror and science fiction, but he would never really want to think of himself as writing those, and he wasn't a fan of the genre. But the stuff, when he wants to be scary, really scary, he did write non-horror stuff, which I have to admit I've not really seen a lot of or know a lot of, because it, it's frightening things, which really get my attention and and he continued to write those for an incredibly long period so in the 50s he was writing the Quatermass films in the 60s he was writing films for Hammer Studios and other things in the 70s he wrote a lot of stuff for ITV he'd fallen out of the BBC by then so he's writing dramas for ITV a lot of those are terrifying in 1989 and I remember this I was eight he wrote what is still to me possibly the most frightening ghost story ever on television which is the woman in black the original itv oh my god that's that's him as well that original film is yeah so i didn't know that yeah um that's a good story because obviously he was getting on by that point he would have been born in 22 this is 89 um so he's you know he's getting near to 70 years old apparently they commissioned him to write the script this is a story that mark gates tells I, i believe it pretty accurate. They commissioned him to write the script. He went, okay, great. Give me the book. I'll adapt it. He wrote the script in a week and then just sent it to his agent. And his agent went, wait a minute, you can't just write it in a week. They'll think you've rushed it and you haven't done a good job. Let's hold it for a bit. Don't send it to the producers. So they didn't send the script for another three weeks. (laughs) Then Nigel Neal's agent heard that the producers were kind of going, my God, he's still sending the script in. You know, he's getting a bit old now. He's probably lost it a bit. Maybe we should think about getting somebody else to write the script. And like, no, 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 he's written it. Have it, have it. <laughs> and it's a fantastic script. I mean, I know the woman in black really well. I've read the book. I've, uh, I've, read, I've heard radio adaptations a bit. I've seen the other film. Mm-hmm. Um, and the kind of little tweaks that Nigel Neal makes to the story are really powerful. It is quite faithful to the book. It is scarier than the book in really clever sort of way. It is fantastic piece of work. That's the last kind of scary thing he wrote. You know, that's bordering on 1990, when I, on Christmas Eve 1989. So he's basically got four decades of churning out kind of horror stuff. And then throughout the 90s, he wrote uh, less frightening television, but he continued to write. So he wrote episodes of Sharp with Sean Bean. Oh. He wrote for Kavanaugh QC. You remember the um, yes. uh, the legal drama with John Thor? And then he kind of retired. He didn't die until 2006. And uh, towards the end of his life, he was uh, he still wanted to write, but he, he, he suffered some kind of brain conditions that, that meant that he couldn't really concentrate enough to write. But he did write. Actually, the one thing he wrote in the 90s, which was kind of scary, is that he wrote, a fifth Quatermass story, right. radio, radio uh, three, and I heard it on its initial broadcast. 
called The Quite Math Memoirs. And it's not really a new story. It's kind of a little drama about Quite Math reminiscing about his, his previous adventures. Um, and it's a really good primer to, because it basically sums up the storylines, the first three Quite Math stories, in about an hour and a half. But it all, it gives a kind of really nice emotional perspective on on them. I can say that even though we've not really talked about the story particularly, I can, I can say this because one of the great things about the Quite Mass stories and uh, and the whole approach is that every single story, I believe, and you may disagree with me because I know you you watched a lot of them in preparation for this, but I, I think they're all pretty much standalone. And even the Quite Mass memoirs which is, you know, which is basically a summary of the stories that have already happened. It would work if you didn't know those stories because it's just kind of a quite low-key tender drama about an old man wrapped with guilt. And one of the opening lines is the quite, in the quote memoirs, he's trying to write his memoirs and he struggles with even the first line. And he says, the Quatermass experiment, they called it, not to give me credit, but just pinning it on me to blame. The whole blame for every shocking, every appalling thing that happened. And they were right, quite right. You know, as Neil says, uh, Professor Quatermass is a man with a conscience and he's haunted by the fact that things he's done have caused, he didn't intend it necessarily, but, you know, horrendous things have happened because of his personal quest. It's, it's kind of scientific goal of, you know, of advancing humankind into space. And we're recording this, by the way, on the day. I don't know when you can put this out, Dan, but okay. we just have news that the, the new NASA mission to the moon has failed. <laughs> <laughs> great, great timing. Great timing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, and, and that is the big thing about Quatermass as well, is that they were stories about space exploration written just before there was real space exploration, you know, and, and putting men into space before any sort of thing had happened. And Nigel Neal's work, one of the great things about it was he was always kind of reaching into the near future, seeing around corners. One of his other famous dramas that um, I was involved with a stage production of, The Year of the Sex Olympics, is basically Love Island. <laughs> it's, it's about a reality TV show on an island, and it's about kind of the use of sexualized entertainment to subdue the masses. And, and he was always very concerned about, even though he was one of the key people in TV, he was always kind of distrustful of it hmm. in its power over vast audiences. And that comes into later things like you know, even Halloween Three. You know, hmm. it's a TV signal that is deadly that will kill your children. It's uh, um, yeah. that's that's a, a very kind of Nigel Neal metaphor, and even though that film was rewritten by other hands, it still has that core and idea in it, that suspicion. So, so yeah, that's a kind of potted Nigel Neal, and I'm quite hey, thank you for letting me go on like that. But and I was slightly impressed with myself. But I think that was a kind of coherent stream of consciousness. Maybe it wasn't like coherent. <laughs> what do you think, Dan? Is there anything you'd like me to make? clearer no no i think i think you're right i think you're right i think um like i i didn't know much about nigel neal and just listening to you then and i'm sure all the other listeners as well they might not know very much about it so thank you for for doing that just giving a bit of context to the film because we're yeah no spoilers but it is the final technically the yes. final quatermass story yes well uh, it is 
it is because even the story that I just described, the Quatermass memoir, is mm. set before the fourth one. Right. So yes. he only remembers the first three stories. So yeah, and, and this story is called the Quatermass Conclusion. It's a clever title because it does conclude the story, but it's also the conclusion he draws. You know, mm. the, uh, the hypothesis, if you like, about what's going on. But yeah, so. absolutely, yeah, and you can definitely see, like we were talking about John Carpenter then and Halloween Three. You can definitely see an influence on his work from this, like especially that first film, the Hammer film that I watched, the Quatermass Experiment. It's very, I saw a lot of the thing in there. Yes, it's it's a great favorite of Carpenter's. There's a good interview with him on YouTube where he specifically talks about that film and the influence it had on him. So yeah, um, and you know that. It, the Quatermass Experiment, the film, which Nigel Neal was not actually involved with, the BBC basically sold the right to Hammer without asking Neil. The script for the movie was uh, written by other people, and, and Nigel Neal basically hated it. I recently, I mean, he's an interesting kind of acerbic character. In one of the recent interviews commemorating Neil's centenary, I think Mark Gates said that, you know, he had a kind of impatience to him, which you might get if you basically knew you were a genius and you're surrounded by less-sounded people who often have the power to tell you what to do. It doesn't mean that he was he, he, he was nasty in life. I mean, he was he was obviously he was a good father. He's a loving husband. He's married to Judith Kerr, who wrote Tiger, who who came to tea. You know, he died oh, wow. years ago. They you know they, they uh, married shortly after the war, and you know were always together. So th there are these kind of quite acerbic quotes that Nigel Neal delivered about most of the productions of his work. To be honest, he comes across as a very half the please guy who, who hates nearly everything. And he did say about the film, The Great Mars Experiment, he said that, that they got rid of nearly all of my dialogue. The acting was terrible. Um, I was not happy about it. And then he goes on to say, and Quake Mars 2, the film, he says, Quake Mars 2, if anything, is even worse. I've managed to do something about that. For a long time, Nigel Neal had the rights to that movie and suppressed it deliberately. He wouldn't allow it to be released anywhere. He did somehow, maybe just mellowed as he got older, he did allow it to resurface many years later. But, but the Quatermass Experiment, the Hammer film, is, is a really important movie as well because it's what gave us Hammer. Hammer as a production company existed, but the Quatermass Experiment was basically the first British film that showed that a horror-type movie could make money, and it, and, it, and it's the success of that that gave Hammer the confidence to look forward to doing gothic horror films, which is which led to the whole tradition of of, uh, of the Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee kind of gothic adaptations and basically 20 years of block products of British horror all came about essentially because of Quatermass movies. And, and Neil was kind of involved a bit with Hammer and would continue to work with them. But other people, you know, did their main horror output. But it, it all started with the Quatermass experiment. There you go. You can all trace it back to that. So it, it sounds like all all these links to him and, you know, other kind of writers, his contemporaries, if you will, of those kind of science fiction stories or horror stories. He sounds like a very influential. You were talking about Quite a Mass 2 then. I was thinking again about They Live because um, it's, oh, right. it's a very similar type, you know, these people, invasion of the body snatchers type thing. Yeah, it's, it's alien infiltration, isn't it? And mm. uh, Quite a Mass 2 
uh, was kind of written at the same time as Invasion of the original novel, the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, was based on. So it's not like Neil was ripping it off, but he also didn't preempt it. It's just two different writers working at the same time, kind of both hit on this idea. And this is a thought I've had over the years, Dan, which I'd like to ask you about. Sure. I think you've seen the four, the four film versions of Christmas now, and those are the four stories. I think that within those four films, those four narratives, you've got every kind of alien invasion possible, apart from the original one, which obviously Neil didn't invent, which was the H.G. Wells kind of invasion by force, the military alien invasion, which we still get, you know, remakes of to this day. But, you know, you've got the invasion of the, of the mind, you've got human beings turning into aliens, you've got a human being essentially possessed by aliens, aliens disguised as humans. Um, you've got the extraordinary thing in Great Mouse and the Pit, which is that the humans are the aliens, but they just don't know it. You know, I'm, we'll probably discuss that a bit more, but specifically it's full of fascinating concepts that have both been borrowed from a lot, but also are kind of unique. And then in Quatermass, the, the Quatermass conclusion, or, or just Quatermass, as it was known when it was on TV, you've, basically, you've got an unknowable alien force, like an alien hand reaching across the galaxy and messing with the human race, and we don't even see them, which I, I think is it's not often done in science fiction. I, I know why, because it's kind of not really necessarily very interesting if you can't see the aliens at all if you don't know what they're about. But also, it strikes me as one of the more realistic um, depictions of an alien, as in something we cannot possibly understand. You know, it's kind of like Lovecraftian. You know, we'll never get our heads around it. And certainly on a, on, on a film with a relatively small budget, you're not going to be able to show it very effectively. So in, in quite much conclusion, and I guess this would be a spoiler, but I don't mind spoiling it because, if anybody approaches a film like The Great Mask Inclusion thinking, I want to know what the cool aliens are like, well, sorry, you're not going to see them. That, though, is the power of it. I remember thinking that before I'd seen it when I was a teenager reading reviews about it. You know, there's something really eerie and disturbing about the fact that we don't know who these creatures are, what they want, if they're even alive, you know, it, because they're reaching light years across space and therefore maybe hundreds of millions of years back in time you know uh, is it even a current thing that's one of the many reasons that i think it's kind of fascinating do we want to move on to talking in detail about that particular movie yet? yes oh. sure yeah 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 i uh, i enjoyed watching all of these um and uh, i remember i messaged you saying oh, i'm watching them all and uh and going to watch the conclusion and stuff and i enjoyed i think quatermass and the pit is my favorite i think it's the Best actor, the best shot, uh, best story, best ideas and themes and stuff. Oh, I, I would agree. And mm. I don't think that, you know, I think lots of people would say that. I, I love the film of Grey Tomatoes and the Pit so much, but I wouldn't need to come on here and, and secretly defend it. <laughs> no, I guess it not. it has massive amounts of fans. Just to give a bit, a bit more detail on the background. So in, mm. in the 50s, yeah, three TV series of Grey Tomatoes, the first two of which were remade very quickly by Hammer. Uh, the third one, the, the film version, didn't happen for a decade for many kind of complicated reasons. It just wasn't it wasn't happening. It eventually comes out in '67. Um, it was a success. Apparently, Hammer uh, kind of went, "Oh, you know, we could make another one, but you've run out of Quatermass stories. Why don't you make up something new?" And it didn't happen as a film. But Nigel Neil, it got his 
mind picking over ideas. He, he ended up submitting scripts to the BBC in the early 70s. They were going to make it, then they got cold feet, possibly because of the material, possibly because it was just getting too expensive. Um, so the, the script was written, but it went unmade. In the late 70s, Neil gets approached by uh, Houston Films, who's the, the ITV drama production company responsible for making things like The Squeamy, one of my favourite TV dramas. Again, it returns us to the, the, the notion of the difference between British and American attitudes to TV. Houston Films, kind of like a company who went, I don't understand why the dramas made in this country are all kind of stagey and theatrical and timid. You know, we should be making stuff like the French Connection. And their whole thing was, let's take drama to the streets, let's use film cameras, let's make little action movies. And as someone who went to film school and ran around with a 16 mil film camera and knows how difficult it is to do that kind of stuff with, with like, technology. I think what they did was really impressive and weirdly that was a period where the BBC was not kind of the best in the land at making drama. That They couldn't really do that kind of filmic drama. Euston Films did and it's great and Euston Films bid for the Quatermass scripts. Apparently Hammer also wanted to do it. They wanted to do it as a movie but by this point late 70s Hammer was kind of falling apart. They they probably didn't have much money, and Houston Films won the bid. But they came to Neil with a really interesting proposition, which is another reason why I wanted to talk about this movie, because it's almost a unique thing, this. They said to him, look, we want to make it, but in order to make the most money out of it, just to find the production cost, it's got to be a TV series and a film at the same time. We'll broadcast the TV series in Britain, we'll put the film in other countries around the world to make money back. And therefore, you have to script two versions, one long version for TV and one short version for film. And he went, okay, sounds interesting. Intellectual challenge, I'll do it. And it's not two completely different scripts. It is the same script for the film it's put down. And a lot of the scenes, most of the scenes are exactly the same, but short. But there are like a few scenes, two or three, four scenes, where he's realised... There's a bit in it where nearly a whole episode of the TV series has gone. They've got rid of it for time. So he's obviously realised, right, we can't just cut from before that to after that. It'll, it'll jar. So he's written a couple of new scenes to go in the middle with just characters talking, to kind of link things together, and it, it, it's all kind of like that. What happened then was that the TV series came out and it wasn't very well received in Britain. Possibly because Quatermass is kind of a legendary name at this time in Britain. And, you know, this was the, the longer way to return. You know, 20 years after the previous series, um, which had gripped the nation and changed TV, another one comes along. And people found it kind of depressing and, and slow and disappointing. And maybe because the TV series hadn't gone down that well in England, they didn't press ahead with the release of the movie in a lot of other territories. There was an Italian dub version of it which I found on YouTube. It was on YouTube for a while. The title was Quite a Mass Conclusion, La Terra Explode. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I mean, they should have sold it with that title and then well, they made all of the money. <laughs> I mean, 
I, I like to think that if it was only released in a few territories, maybe one of them was Italy, because I think it would have suited them down to the ground. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, have you seen Gombe Flesh Eaters? Yes, yes, uh, uh, Lucio, Lu- Lucio Fulci, yeah. Yes, of course, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, you're, uh, we discussed Fulci before. And, uh, yeah, so that movie stars Ian McCulloch, the Scottish actor Ian McCulloch, Specifically because a TV series he starred in in Britain called Survivors in the mid-70s, which is depressing as hell and all kinds of brilliant. We talk about it on our on our podcast. Um, it's not an ideal meal, but it's kind of in similar vein. That show, which is really dour, and it's basically like uh, it's COVID-19 times a thousand. Everybody dies of a cold, and the survivors just have to do their best. That's it. There's no big plot. There's nothing particularly exciting about it. It's really dour. That show was really popular in Italy. <laughs> and as a result, Ian McCulloch was sought to be the star of Zombie Fleshy. If there's one territory where quite most conclusion might have gone down well, it maybe it's that one. And also, I, I wanted to talk to you about it because it kind of connects to me with where the early Quatermass films were forward looking and they you know slightly futuristic in that they were about um you know they're about space travel before it happened and things like that. Quatermass conclusion is actually set in the future. It's kind of post apocalyptic almost. And in a way therefore it it just links to, to Mad Max. It links to that whole swathe of Italian post apocalypse movies of the late seventies, early eighties. It's part of that kind of movement. And I don't know if they realised that at the time. But I you know, I, I found myself trying to imagine what it would be like to be like an Italian cinema goer in nineteen eighty. <laughs> it has no idea what Quatermass is, but just went into this movie thinking, This could be interesting. I, I you know, I like the ultimate warrior and various kind of <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, wasteland death match type movies, how will this do? And then it was kind of wondering how they would react. This kind of very elegi- British, very, very British el- el- elegiac. I think I'm pronouncing yeah. that word correctly. I may not be. It's all about basically. It's about the end of life. You know, most of the characters are elderly, and, it, uh, and it's it's kind of shot through with a kind of pragmatism. You know, it's not about victory. It's not about achieving the ideal situation. It's about just doing what you can. That's, what I find fascinating about it, but I, I wonder how it kind of plays if you're used to and used to a kind of more kind of schlocky, exciting kind of post-apocalyptic thing. And I wondered if you might be the person to ask about that. Uh, yeah, well, I do. As you know, I do love a good post-apocalyptic film, and I do love my Italian exploitation films and horror films as well. Um, but you know what? There is something I think to like about even if you're not, if even if it's not, they're not necessarily as action packed or uh, as gory or heavy necessarily on the effects. I think there is something to like about this character and the series of films. I like his political stance on things. I like mm-hmm. that he doesn't, um, you know, all these authority figures are always like, "You're talking absolute rubbish, Quatermass. We wouldn't do that." <laughs> You know, oh, and no one will die. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You're off the project. I'll show you. And, <laughs> you know, he's kind of, there's this arrogance, but it's kind of earned as well because he is this genius scientist who, again, wants to reach and, and propel us to the stars and 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 advance humanity onwards. And he doesn't, and we're, again, he talks about society and, and the politics and the bureaucracy getting in the way of 
of of true kind of enlightenment and and the future itself. And I quite I quite enjoy that. And I like that he kind of there's I mean it, I mean good sci-fi is about something, isn't it? It's not just oh, is a, a guy in a rubber suit. You know what I mean? It's it's usually it has some unique or interesting ideas which are trying to say something about society, politics, um, you know, the advancement of technology, whatever that may be. And I think, like, again, like we were saying how influential this is, I think a lot of that can stem from this these, these series of films or TV serials or books, whatever you want to call it, this franchise itself. Obviously, there'll have been stories before and definitely stories after, but I think... There's there's something to enjoy, and I think his character is in in every version. He's very like he doesn't really stand back. He's always like right, let's go. He's he's you know he's not he's not an action hero. It's not Stallone or Schwarzenegger or anything, but he still rolls into these situations. You know, straight away doesn't mess around. You know, he he is absolutely fighting to to understand and figure this out, whatever the problem is, these alien issues, and and I and I appreciate that, and I, I like that line you were saying about the the blame and stuff, and I think that is him. It's it's a it's kind of a responsibility he feels he has um, when you know he comes across these things or creates these things, these these problems and these issues. Um, you know, he's this brilliant guy, and and uh, I like that in this one, he's kind of because it's almost like he. He's on the border between like senility. He's he's becoming quite old and quite scared and vulnerable and and not very confident. But then when he gets in that TV studio at the beginning, and then he's like, they're like, "What do you think, uh, uh, Bernard Quatermass?" And he's like, "I think it's a horrible idea. I don't like the Russians. <laughs> I don't like the Americans. They're awful. Superpowers. You know, look at this country." And uh, and I, I, w- I will say, like, you know, a lot of these stories are quite, you know. Uh, prophetic, if you will. You were saying a little earlier that like science fiction often does become science fact, and and living in a post-COVID world and watching watching this film and going, oh, I've, and there's a, a voiceover from one of the Russian scientists, and he's like, uh, oh, in England, most people have died from this virus, and uh, there's political unrest and poverty, and I was like, oh, this sounds all very familiar at the moment. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, I- I've recently bought this wonderful book. I've not read all of it. It's called We Are the Martians, The Legacy of Nigel Neal. It was published a couple of years ago. It's basically in-depth essays on a lot of his work. And there's an essay by David Peary, which is kind of an overview. And he's quite critical of the fourth way to mask because he says it's not most, a lot of Nigel Neal's things, as we've said, are like prophetic, but quite to mask forward doesn't seem to be. And that's one of the reasons why it was not well received at the time, you know. And Peary says, yes, uh, Neil seems to think that London will will um, will crumble and, and fall to lawlessness, uh, whereas the rest of the country becomes like an idyllic, um, bucolic haven or whatever. In fact, the opposite is true. Like, London is this haven. But then I thought, well, hang on a minute. No, 10 years ago, we had the riot. And, uh, and and now I think possibly we're looking at more, you know, because because of the, the the energy shortages and things like that. And you've got the um the recent weather, which is worse in London, much worse. You know, our, uh, uh, the other week when we had a, our heat wave, a few days of extreme heat, I was in a, a hardware shop and we heard a, <laughs> the news was on the radio. And the newsreader described it as the heat wave emergency. And the guy behind the shop counter kind of laughed his head off and said, 
heat wave emergency. It's a sunny day. And what I didn't say was, yes, mate, but now South people's houses are burning down. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and actually, like last year, I, I read the novelization of Greater Math, which is a, a game by Nigel Neal. It was uh, just a fourth story. And I was reading that at the same time that we were getting the news about the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. You get a really strong sense from the book, uh, even more so than the film. The distress and vulnerability of being in a dangerous world when you're an elderly person who's already kind of vulnerable, you know, mm. and, uh, and you get hints of that in the in the film, like all, all the kind of, you know, at the start of the movie, Quakermass just walked down London Street, it's very dark. In the book, it's clear that there are people living in those houses who either can't afford or are afraid to put their lights on. Wow. Like just hide, you know. Yeah, then I looked, I looked at the news and thought, yeah, not necessarily London, but as a, as a, a world as a whole, we are not far away from this. In, and, and obviously there are places in the world where it's been like that for a long time. Neil was a basically deeply pessimistic person and he seemed to be aware that you can build things up, but even the strongest things crumble if you don't maintain them. And, and we're seeing that with democracy and we're seeing you know, the kind of events for a few years um, of kind of... It, without going into the political side of it. Yeah. You know, it's kind of been a lesson in, don't get complacent because anything you thought was sorted and fixed, it can still go away, it can fall over, it can be undermined. Obviously, watching these films in quite a close proximity myself, I, I, I do really notice the kind of his trajectory, kind of, again, mm. it's... That early one is, you know, we've got to experiment. We've got to push boundaries. We've got to, you know, break break conventions. We've got to experiment. We've got to explore with these things we don't know. We need to understand them or figure them out. Mm-hmm. And then this one is kind of like, this is something I want to ask you because it's obviously the the story, the plot of the film, the the Quatermass conclusion, is a uh, these. Uh, planet people, which are a, a group of youngsters. Um, well, it's basically a whole, for the most part, it's most of the country of youngsters, um, most of the UK and all over the world, in fact, we find out later, that are going to these kind of ringstone areas like... like um, Yeah, the megaliths. Yeah, there's like Stonehenge, basically, yep. just not Stonehenge. Um, and they're going there and they believe somehow they believe that they're going to be taken off this planet. That's why they're called the planet people. And there's this uh, religion and they're like walking down the road, these the swinging the little things and, and they're just going lay, lay, lay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and all this other stuff. And they're like, one, one of my favorite lines in the entire film really made me laugh is when some of the planet people are attacking, I think Quatermass and the other, the other scientist and the, and the woman just goes, stop trying to know things. Yes. I, that really struck me when I watched it this week. It's one of my favorite lines as well. Yeah, but She delivers that with such passionate venom as well. She does. She does. Like, I, believe it's, I believe it. Like I believe it. It did. It did. It did. It did. Oh, stop trying to know things. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it, it was, uh, you just think mm, maybe this writer has a very low opinion of like young people. Well, this is this is what I, this is what I wanted to say because obviously throughout the plot we learned that this alien message or uh, communication is affecting the younger brains because they're 
I think that I think I think Quatermass describes that his brain's drying up. I think that's how yes, the, he says that. Yeah, the the wetter brains are more susceptible to the signal or what have you. And <laughs> let's put it let's put it that way. Well, he does. Yeah, he says that metaphorically. I think. Yeah, and I, I and I like that moment because it just showed that there are there are disadvantages to growing old as well. You know, sure. um, it's it's not like a. But I think it's characterised as an old versus young polemic. I don't think that's yeah, really. Listen, Oh, yeah, because I'm, I'm, obviously we have all the way through the film there is this subplot of uh, Quatermass trying to find his his granddaughter. Um, the his his daughter's dead, but the daughter of his daughter is alive, and he's trying to find her. And he, and he keeps, you know, he's, it's it's really like heartbreaking because he's just like, just uh, here, take this photo and just keep the number, and if you see yeah. her, you know, just tell me. And it's really like, oh shit, like. I can see the evolution of the character from the previous films that he's got to this point where he's just like, he's like, just, uh, uh, you, you think, because in the, in the initial beginning of the film, he's beaten up and he's all over the show. And until he sits down in that chair in the, in the, in the uh, studio where you think, where you think, all oh, right, this is the Quatermass I know from the other films. This is, this is him. He doesn't give it, he absolutely doesn't give a, a shit, a fuck. He doesn't give anything. Uh, he'll just say what he thinks and what he believes. Um, and I like I like that I like seeing that more vulnerable sign to him because I don't think you get that necessarily in some of the other films or some of the I, other performances. You certainly don't in the early ones. And, and now that you said that, we should mention for people listening who, who have no familiarity with the series, it is a peculiarity of the Quatermass that the actor playing Quatermass changes almost constantly. Um, in all three of the 1950s series, he's played by a different actor. And, um, which was for practical reasons because the initial actor that they cast who was going to continue, uh, he died before Quatermass 2 was recorded weeks before they had to get someone else in at pretty short notice. Wow. Um, but Brian Don Levy, who plays him in the first two movies, is really the only actor to have played him twice on screen. And in Quatermass uh, and Pitt, you get Andrew Keir, who was kind of a known British movie actor, much younger than he appears. I was shocked when I recently discovered he was, I think, 39 when he made Quatermass. Really? Young, younger than I am now. I mean, uh, you know, imperious based on a grey beard. You know, he looked about 55, but yeah, he was not 40. For the late 70s series, apparently the producers wanted a star name because they believed that would be necessary to sell the movie overseas. And they went to Sir John Mills, great British movie star of the kind of 40s and 50s kind of war movies and things like that, coming to the end of his career then. But the story is about elderly Quatermass. They needed an elderly actor with gravitas. And I was thinking, you know, if they're not going to be able to get Mills, who else would they have gone for? I was thinking maybe James Mason would be the only kind of comparable person with weight. And, of course, he was doing a horror TV by that time. You know, he's in the, the original Salem's Lot. Yes. Um, yeah. For instance. And, and I think it would have been interesting um, with him. But anyway, well, they, uh, they got John Mills. And, and, yeah. and John, John Mills, who was an actor in his younger days, who was known for kind of kind of military heroes in a way, and every man, strong every man, he's in loads of war movies. He's kind of plays it against type for himself as this kind of vulnerable guy and I, I, I believe Neil himself wasn't very happy with that casting because he thought Quatermass should still have 
a sense of that kind of command to him, even though he's much older now. But but uh, John Mills definitely plays up the vulnerability, but it's a really nice performance because, I, like you say, I think you can see the moments when the old fire returns. Sorry, Dan, you were going to say something there. No, um, uh, I was just going to kind of carry on with the with the plot, but yeah, I definitely there's definitely that sort of thing. But also, do you think obviously like Nigel Neal is writing this in the early seventies, so there's quite a lot of you know stuff going on. You know, there's mm. there's punk movements, hippie movements, there's cults, there's Manson, there's oil shortages, there's superpowers combining their power um, for space stations and what have you. There was all this sort of stuff coming in. Do you think, do you think there is somewhere, obviously we have, we have the the daughter and there's a link to, and there's other young people that come into the plot. Um, uh, we have Manimal, Manimal's in this as well. Yes. Simon McCorkindale, great <laughs> Simon McCorkindale, who I will always, well, probably mostly because of this, but he, he, the year before this was made, he, he was also one of the stars of Death on the Nile, which is one of my favorite yes, movies. Yes, of course. And, uh, and he also, of course, as, as I'm sure that you will treasure as much as I did, he also leaned out of the mouth of a big rubber shark with a <laughs> grenade in his hand <laughs> in Jaws 3D. You know, and why that doesn't want to do that? Who um, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Yeah, but- certain. but yeah, I, I just, obviously there's, there's those elements, but do you think, do you think, it's like it's an ageist thing. Like obviously, the old the older generation because they don't f- hear this signal or don't feel it and don't gravitate towards this. Basically, the this beam of light comes down periodically and takes senses human beings there and either obliterates them or takes them away, whatever whatever that may be. But uh, it seems to be the latter. It seems to just obliterate them. Um, but mm. do you do you think there's a, a thing like maybe Nigel Neal was getting more conservative and reactionary maybe in his age, and and that's why we see a lot of these things where old people never understand the young or the younger just oh I can't even get you know close to what they're thinking about something like kind that. Kind of old man yells at cloud thing, get off my lawn. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I I think there's undoubtedly an element of that to it, although Neil was not amazingly old when he wrote it. It seems like the work of an old, a really old man. You know, it's about elderly people, but he was about probably about fifty, maybe I think, when he wrote okay. the script. Um, and I I think there are, there are elements. Yes, he definitely is concerned and bothered by youth culture, but he's also I think there are hints that he thinks that previous generations have failed the younger generations. Mm. There is a line in this, it might be cut out of the Grace Master conclusion of the film, but it's definitely in the longer TV version, and I do get them a bit mixed up sometimes. You know the scene where Kickalong, you mentioned Charles Manson, Kickalong mm. is the kind of leader, planet person, who's a, um, an imperious thug, basically, played by Ralph Arliss, kind of brilliantly. Ralph Arliss is now an MP, I believe. Um, that character was consciously based on Charles Manson by Neil. So he, he was certainly kind of thinking about the current the current directions of youth culture, and he was concerned. But also, there are hints in the movie, like Kick Long shouts in one scene. We're go- he's addressing his followers, and he says, "We're going to the planet, leaving them behind. They bossed it, so they can keep it." 
And yeah. there is this sense that, you know, it, it is the older generations that mucks up the world. And also there's the fact that it is a plot element that gradually becomes clear in the film that this alien influence has been exerting its effect on Earth for decades. So it's not like that it's, if they are blame at all for what's going on, it's not their fault, you know, that they have kind of been sort of perverted. And I, I find it very moving, even though it's kind of metaphorical, that like that scene where Quakermas uh, takes a picture of his daughter and he says to someone, look at her, isn't it there in the eyes, the strangeness? And I couldn't read it. It was all there to see all the time. That makes sense in a plot-wise. It's mm. like only just realising what's going on. But also it's like eternal generational drama of looking for your younger people and going, oh, my God, I've not given them enough time. I didn't understand them, so I didn't talk to them enough or, or whatever. You know, I've mm. not reached out to them. I was always expecting them to reach out to me. Kind of. Thing. I mean, I haven't got children, but I, I think it's not an uncommon thing to not be doing much with the younger elements of your family, whether it's your own children or, you know, mm. your nephews and nieces or whatever, and then realise, have that heartbreaking moment, oh, no, I didn't reach out to them and now it's too late, you know. I mean, I, not in my own family, but I've got a friend who has a son who is named after me. Wow. Middle name is Dan, and I don't know him not spoke to him over the years, I've, I've bought him presents, I've, I've kept in touch. Hmm. But I suddenly realised I've never sat down and had a proper chat with this guy, I don't know him, and he's 18 now. I, I find that element of this quite a story moving. One of the reasons that I want to defend this fourth one, it's generally unfavourably compared to the previous three, maybe for good reasons, but I think it has an emotional component that the others don't. And it has a sense of loss in it that the others don't. I mean, quite a certain bit is that it built up to an emotional climax. But that's kind of connected to what's happening in the plot. Whereas the quite a conclusion has a kind of generalized emotional resonance. Everybody in it's lost something. It's about loss. And it's kind of about rediscovering what's important. Again, in that book, We Are the Martians, there's a big essay about specifically the Quatermass conclusion. And the person writing that essay concludes, her concludes, um, <laughs> that the the basic message of it is that Quatermass has spent all his life devoted to science and discovery and moving things forward. And at the end of his life, he's discovered none of that stuff actually mattered. All that matters really is love. And that's why he's trying to find his granddaughter. You know, mm. his wife's dead, his daughter's dead. I mean, it, it doesn't actually get mentioned in any of the film, but it, it is clear, especially if you read the novel of Quatermass, which, again, it's weird, because not only did Nigel Neal have to write film scripts and a TV script at the same time, he also wrote a novel of it at the same time. None of them were based on the other. He was kind of doing them all at once. And they're all really great in different ways. The novel is very powerful. And it does make it clear in that, you know, which is never, I don't think it's explicitly confirmed, uh, in, certainly not in the films. But, you know, Quatermass's wife was dead before the first Quatermass story. He's always been a widower. He's always been kind of traumatised. And, that, and that's probably what pushed him to focus on his work so much. But now 
he's realising that he needs to reach out to his family again and he's only got this one family member left and she's off somewhere with these hippies and he doesn't know what to do. I love the moment, uh, you, like you mentioned, you know, it's full of the heartbreaking moments where he's trying to hand out pictures of her and saying her name for it on the back. And at one point, he, he's trying to give it to a bunch of planet people and he sees one of them who's a little girl, she's about, looks about six, and he says, here, here dear, take pictures. And because she's a little girl, she does actually take one off him, but it's slapped out of her hand immediately by someone else who can say, yeah, ignore the old, the crazy old man. Uh, yeah, sorry, I went off on a bit of a, <laughs> a reverie right. there. But. Don't worry, don't worry. We love a good tangent here on Spider-Man and the Secret World. <laughs> I've gone on many, many a tangent myself. You were saying that there was two, obviously there's two versions, there's two scripts. There's the film script and and the TV script. So I'd like to know, I, I've watched the film version, so the shorter version. Um, I, I'd like to know, you were talking about some some of the kind of stuff we were that were kind of missing, not necessarily missing, but rewritten yeah, yeah. around for the TV version. So I was wondering if there's if there's anything I'm missing out uh, by not seeing the TV version, or, uh, or is there a superior version of, of this? The TV version is better because the longer length of it, four-hour-long episodes, so it's about three and a half hours long, and that kind of space seems appropriate for this story of, of, uh, of endings and uh, and slow realisation. But the film does a really good job of kind of getting all the details in, as does the film of Quatermass and the Pit, actually. It's weird, because the, the TV series of Quatermass and the Pit does exist, and I have seen it, it's on, it's on Blu-ray, and it's like twice as long as the film. And if you've seen the film, you think, oh my God, it's twice as long. There must be loads of stuff the film missed out, and then you watch it, and it doesn't. The film has nearly everything in it, it just does it faster. Um, and really efficiently. And Quatermass' conclusion is the same, but there's um, because of the nature of the story, it's less appropriate for it to be really fast-moving. So it's just nice to think you have to breathe a bit. There, there are a few extra... Well, there's a big chunk that's not in the movie, which is, remember the scene where Quatermass and Annie, the great character, district commissioner, um, Annie... Uh, I can't remember the surname now, played by Margaret Dizak. She drives him into London to try and get him in touch with the authorities and they get ambushed by some gangs. Yeah. And she has to drive through the barricades. In the TV version, the gangs actually manage to open the, the door of the Jeep and pull Quatermass out and then they start firing at her with machine guns so she has to just drive away without him. Quatermass manages to escape, find himself in a weird community of elderly people who live in like... A, like, it looks like an old kind of car breaker's yard. They've kind of made homes inside the chassis of upside-down cars. And they have this interesting sort of alien existence. And, you know, in the movie, towards the end when he says, well, we need old people to help us, uh, and then all the elderly scientists turn up to do all the kind of grunt work. A lot of those characters are actually people he meets. Ah. The TV show in, in in the elderly community, and there's, there's some really good character stuff in there, and also there's kind of a, a good link to his ultimate conclusion, which is that this alien force wants a bit of humanity. It's not even 
you know, it maybe wants a bit of sense or something that's gathering from people. And the reason he comes to that conclusion is that he meets an old man in this community who's described as great as a scientist. So he goes, oh, I must talk to this man. It turns out, yeah, he's a scientist technically. He worked in soap manufacturer for like 50 years. And he, he talks about how they used to manufacture musk from uh, the musk ears that they used to just slaughter and, and, and make perfume out of. And Quatermass says, they use how much animal do they use? And he goes, oh, hardly anything. It's a trace. And, um, and that kind of gets Quatermass his brain picking. Right. You know. Um, there's also another bit towards the end. There's a bit more about, and this is the only thing I find kind of awkward in the film, is after spoilers, uh, Joe Cap has, uh, has been bereaved and, and lost his family and he kind of wanders around in a haze. You do get a bit of that in the film. There's more of it in the TV series. Um, and specifically, the scene, you, uh, you know, where um, Cap's kind of in the, the wreck of the observatory and he's trying to operate the equipment and then kick along and the planet people kind of break in and they smash everything up. That seems longer in the TV series, and it's a really chilling kind of scene where they actually have a long discussion. Kickalong realizes that this man who's heartbroken is kind of uh, pliable. And he says, It's okay, you can join with us, but first you've got to unlearn everything you've learned. He says, All them words in your head, I don't want none of that. So there's this great moment where, like, Kickalong has what this and holds his arm up. Mm. And and Joe Capter's arm, and he goes, no, there, there, there. It's like they have only one word, which can be everything, mm. you know. Uh, and they try and get Joe to say, there, instead of arm, and he does go along with it for about five seconds. Mm. Then he just goes, no, he can't, like, abandon rationalism. Mm. I was going to say, it's very much like, you know, the rational versus the religious in yeah. this as well, and uh, and and he's very much like straight away. He's like, oh, I don't like those planet people. They're they're crazy and they're dangerous. And yeah. you know, and he and at this, you know, obviously they start walking through their, you know, the satellite dishes where they're based and what they're studying and stuff. And uh, he's just going to shoot them. He's just like, I was like, there's kids. Don't shoot them. They're just kids. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's wired by Barbara Kellerman. He's very much kind of the soul of her. Her performance is weird. I often find yeah. she's kind of like a stop motion animation. She does everything a little bit too slow and deliberate. You know, there's a bit where they go to Ringstone Round and the cops are there trying to subdue the planet people. The lead cop says, Can you get out of the way? I've got a riot on my hands here. And she goes, He's making it. Joe, I, I want to be the director. Can you just do that again, but like twenty percent faster? Yeah. It's just you know, she just does this. But she's supposed to be. Maybe she has this kind of spiritual side, and um, it does complicate and make interesting the whole kind of religion versus rationality yeah. side of it. But they have a, a Jewish ritual. Uh, with the menorah, got the menorah. They've got the menorah there that they light. And that's quite uh, interesting as well because obviously he's a man of science. Yeah. Yeah. Still they still practice some some of the religion and may even may even still in the smallest, smallest part of him 
still believe there is a God. And it's interesting, though, at the end of the film, when Quatermass and Pablo kind of looking up to the sky, waiting for the reappearance of the alien being, uh, Joe Cap finally says, and now I know what evil is. That's evil. Like, he's discovered the kind of truth of evil in the universe. And this is a, a theme in Neil's work. Yeah. It's about what spiritual evil is and, and how you define it. Because, um, so he was married to Judith, uh, who was uh, from a Jewish family, whose, whose family escaped the Holocaust. He was very aware of the real evil in the world that, you know, can prey on spiritual beliefs or proceed from them, but not in a kind of... Not necessarily in a kind of Richard Dawkins, uh, religion is the root of all evil way. Hmm. It's more like thinking it's something within us. Maybe it doesn't quite come from where we think it does, but it's important. So like in Quatermass and the Pit, yeah, got a lot of stuff about the spiritual evil in humanity, but, it's, but it turns out to all be linked to kind of alien influence. And again, that happens in this film too and it, without wanting to go into too much detail about the others just let's be clear to the listeners i mean i know you said it's your favorite and and i said it's most people's favorite and it is amazing quite a bit if you haven't read it seen it don't know anything about it go and watch it it's stunning i don't want to spoil too much of it but it did have this element the earlier quite masses don't which is the linking explicit linking between kind of uh, demonic traditional beliefs human beliefs with extraterrestrial stuff and the, and also the past of humankind being linked to something beyond again that kind of lovecraftian connection of, of a history with a cosmic otherness and yeah, the first two Quatermass films kind of have elements that feed on that. You know, you've got the, the fact that in Quatermass, to everyone who's possessed by the alien has a kind of mark of Satan on them, you know, the old mm. little burn mark, which is kind of like a very prone kind of folk traditions in history, you know, and things like that. And the fact that the whole climax of the Quatermass experiment takes place in Westminster Abbey, there are religious resonances going on in those. But in Quatermass on the pitch, it becomes more explicit. And I think, kind of by accident, sort of invents folk horror, you know, the genre of folk horror, mostly, although it's going around the world now, it's a very British genre. It's kind of about things that are in the land, the history of the land and the people's interaction with the forces of nature. I think there are elements of that in Quatermass and the Pit, the way they're talking about how people digging up trees in the past had led to psychic disturbances. And, you know, this is written in the 50s, the film made in the 60s, at kind of the same time as the first folk horror movies like Witchfinder General. So 10 years or so later, the Quatermass conclusion builds on that. And it's another story, kind of coincidental, maybe somewhat unbelievable, that Professor Quatermass discovers another alien influence that is connected to the past of humankind, but in a different way. Although now Neil later did a clever retcon uh, in the Quatermass memoirs, where he kind of describes the uh, kind of carnage that is seen at the end of Quatermass and the Pit, where there is a kind of very post-apocalyptic destruction of London. That's the beginning of kind of the route 
degradation that leads to the, the dystopia of the great mass conclusion. Uh-huh. And um, and in a way, that makes complete sense visually. I mean, one of the nice things about Great Mass Conclusion, I think, is that it starts off with Quatermass walking through the ruined streets of London, and Quatermass ends with him standing on a ruined street in London. It feels very much like a continuation of that attitude and that world, you know. So, so there is a link there, and that, and so I find that link between kind of science fictional thinking and a spiritual viewpoint endlessly fascinating and powerful, and you can do so much with it. And Quatermass and the does that, and then Quatermass conclusion also does that. By the way, I've been talking about folk horror, and I'm not sure, um, you know, if you if you've got a particular stance on that kind of genre or much knowledge of that emerging genre. Yeah, as you know, I'm a big fan of uh, the Wicker Man, which is absolutely, you know, absolutely yeah. one of one of the best and one, one of the. Favorite. I'm also a big fan of League of Gentlemen, who are highly influenced by a lot of the things that you talk about on your podcast. Hammer, Nigel Neal, obviously, and uh, and those kind of and the Wicker Man as well. You know, I'm looking for a girl and all that. Uh, <laughs> yes, you know. Yeah. Uh, so there is there is a lot of those elements that I quite like, and the kind of eeriness and the off kilter feel. So yeah, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't profess that I'm a big. Uh, I'm very knowledgeable on folk horror. Or I've seen a lot of them. But I've I've seen enough where I'm like, yeah, I I get it. You know, I I can understand the concept and what they're trying to do. And usually, it's usually some sort of pagan thing or satanic thing. Um, yeah. Usually, uh, but not always. Obviously, there's you know you can have a kind of a folk horror film that doesn't really have any of that. I think in some re- some respects. Well, I really think it it's where you a film or a story where you draw horror from the relationship between people and the land and their past and mm. the way those things interact and, and it doesn't have to be satanic or whatever mm. which is how you do it and I really think it's it's an emerging genre in the past sort of 10 years ironically since Mark Gatiss dug up the term folk horror in his documentary A History of Horror that was made in 2010 Oh, I've seen that. He, I've seen that. It's good. He, he aligns the Wicker Man, Blood and Satan's War, and uh, Witchfinder General, and calls them folk horror. And he talks to Piers Haggard in that in that documentary. Piers Haggard directed Blood and Satan's War, and is the first man to coin the term folk horror. There's an interview with him from the early seventies where he said, I, "I'm trying to make a folk horror film." Because hmm. like, what's that? Never, we've never heard of that. Now it's because I think because Gatiss used that term and resurrected those films. I mean, certainly that documentary made me go and see Blood on Things, which I'd never seen. I've got it on DVD now. And, it, and since that kind of re emerged in a slew of mm. folk horror movies, I think it is dominant genre of kind of low budget horror. It's certainly there's, a, there's, a, there's a huge documentary on Shudder about it as well, folk horror. It's just. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like I think it's like three hours long or something. I've not not watched all of it yet, but I I, I made a start, um, and it's very fascinating. They they talk about the TV, they talk about you know history of it and where it came from, what it's about, you know what it influenced TV and film. Um, but yeah, I highly, highly recommend it. It was very interesting. Again, it's a bit it's a bit long, but I I think if you if you break it up a bit, it's it's still really really good. Kind of thing that see me through a few breakfasts. <laughs> spread it out over a week or so. That's Absolutely. Lovely. I think, although 
because folk horror is about it's about tradition and is about past, you can kind of co-opt lots of past productions into it. And I think we, we are discovering that lots of different countries have a tradition of folk horror without realizing it. Horror movies about uh, about the history and about the land, and it's now kind of retroactively been kind of identified that Nigel Neal was one of the pioneers of folk horror because he even before a film of Way to Have Some Pit. He, he wrote a TV play, which is somebody now lost, called The Road. It's set in the 16th century. There is an audio version of it recently remade by BBC Radio, and it has Mark Cates in it, of course. Um, of course. Super fan. And, and it's all about, it's basically a ghost story set in the 16th century, but the ghosts are from the future. And Ooh. characters don't know that, but the, the audience do, because they, they live in the future and they will recognise the sounds that are being heard and things. Uh, that, that's awesome. So that's kind of identified as one of the very beginning kind of uh, rolling balls toward British folk horror. And then you've got Blood and Satan Squad and Peter Taggart, who directed that and coined the term folk horror, is the director of the Greater Mask Conclusion. Uh... Um, and it's so his other kind of masterpiece, you know. Uh, and, and, and all these things kind of pull together. The way the way your brain works is a bit like mine, but yours is on kind of British talent filmmaking TV. For me, it's just Marvel Comics. It's just all the, <laughs> it's okay. all the various universes, all these random and weird characters, uh, and you know, and maybe some other film stuff, but obviously of a different variety. Um, but I do like how you managed to connect all that together. That was amazing. Oh, thank you very much. Well, I think we love Link, don't we? Mm. And it's great. Because I think the reason why things like that are fascinating to us is because life is random. It doesn't make much sense. But when you are able to find an area where you can link things together and go, ah, it's because of this, you know, it, it's a rabbit hole that is very pleasurable and reassuring to go down. Yes, and- I, I, I often do it, especially when I'm collating the hundreds and hundreds of clone balls I've I've put together over time. I'm like, oh, yeah, they're connected in a little bit away. Oh, yeah, they're quite similar as well. Oh, I can put those together. Yeah, that might be a- it's a great format, the clone balls, because I, I used to say, I mean, I'm, I'm a film student, and, you know, so films are a big part of my life. And I used to say the only thing better than sitting down and watching a good film, sitting down and watching two good films. So if you can find like a really complementary double bill of films that aren't necessarily connected in any way, but they just work together beautifully. Mm. So like I've always wanted to sit down and watch in one sitting, you, you know, the movie Insomnia with um, Al Pacino, yeah. um, which is obviously a remake, but a Norwegian film. Um, and the movie The Pledge with Jack Nicholson. So oh, yeah. Both both kind of, they came out fairly close together and they're both kind of weird, woozy dramas of policemen at the end of their careers maybe kind of losing their grip um, in very different settings. You know, one of them's in Alaska and is all bright white sun and the other one is, I think, the Midwest and everything's kind of sandy. And But they both have this sense of, uh, again, a bit folk horror-ish of kind of the environment kind of working on human being kind of messing with their head um, and finding their vulnerability. Yeah, I like that. Well, that sounds like a good one, actually. I'll, I'll, I'll note that down. Maybe that'll be our, maybe that'll be our next one, next well, podcast we do. I'll, just give me a call, man. You know? <laughs> I will, I will. Let's talk about the, the ending as well, I think. Let's, let's talk about that. Um, 
obviously, spoilers, spoilers. I thought the conclusion, ha ha ha, was actually quite heartbreaking and quite effective, I think. Okay, I'm glad you said um, I thought, because again, we, we don't know about the daughter, the granddaughter, if she's alive, if she's dead, where is she? It's a sh- it's assumed that she's with the, the planet people because she's young and, mm-hmm. you know, and she's she's wandered off or she's disappeared, you know, so it potentially could be with them. And and at right at the end, as all the kind of climax coming together, the, the all the older elderly scientists have figured out they just need to kind of create a sense of life within these ringstones and you know you know pheromones and blood and tissue and whatever else they're chucking in within those those ringstones to make it seem you know there's a presence there and then what they're going to do is they're going to send set off a nuclear bomb uh they don't know if it's going to damage it there's there's well, that's a... the wonderful thing. Actually, this is a scene mm. that I noticed the lack of a clear victory. It's more kind of about what you can do. It's not the, the best, the ideal thing. They're pretty sure that what they're going to do is not going to damage it. They're going to wait for the beam to come down and then they're going to explode a bomb at it. And they don't think it'll damage it, but it might just kind of shock it a bit. And I think it's a scene in the TV version that's not in the film where Quasimus says it's a bit like if you're walking along and you accidentally tread on uh, a mosquito or something and it, it bites you, you will not tread in that area again. And that's all that they're hoping to do is just give it a slight uh, annoyance. And Quasimus is very clear. Joe Cap says, well, you really think this will destroy it? And Quasimus goes, no, it certainly won't. This thing is thousands of light years away. All, all we can do is just shock it, give it a bit of a storm. Hmm. I hope that works. Send, um, send it a message. I, th- I think they they use that term as well. And with all the with all the religious talk, I'm surprised nobody like mentioned the rapture. I thought that might be. Oh yeah, that's true. Because I was like, I was like, the whole idea is that they're being carried up. These select mm-hmm. people, these this group of people, are being carried off potentially to a, to a new. Uh, a new world, you know, a new planet, as they believe. Um, I did like that bit where one of the politicians is like, "I'm just quite young enough to understand." <laughs> I was like, "I was like, you're not really. You're at least like 40." <laughs> I was like, but you're not. I wouldn't call you young. I wouldn't call you. Actor young. who I um, always reminds me of our friend Joel Mason. Yes. Somehow. Yes. Um, <laughs> you see that too. Yeah. Um, if we remake Quatermass Conclusion. That's John's role. Absolutely, yeah. Because um, yeah. that's why um, I thought I thought he was going to say it's God or it's the Rapture or mm. like I thought this was his opportunity to to go. Well, I'm a God fearing man and I believe this and this is great opportunity and this is this. I thought he was going to go into that, but yeah, it's never really mentioned. Obviously, we have again uh, all the Jewish stuff. The wife, the wife and the daughter, obviously uh, the Doctor Cap uh, are taken. Again, it also reminds me of. Uh, going back to Halloween three again, obviously we've got you know at the end of that Dan O'Hurler he gets there's a, a a blinding light and he gets turned into like a pillar of salt or like this <laughs> white, white powder. I we've wish got, it was as, as impressive as that sounds. But there yeah. we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, we what else do we have? Um, obviously we've got the the killing primarily of children. Yeah, yeah. You've yeah. got obviously not Stonehenge, but you've got the Ringstone Round. And you've also got like a little, a little jingle, a little nursery rhyme. Oh, that's true. Of oh, the nursery, 
again, maybe some of these things are there are the coincidences or they are Halloween 3 showing that it is as much influenced by Neil as created by Neil. Yeah. Because I think the jingle stuff was added to the film late in the day. Mm. And yeah. I think probably long after he left the film. Well, yeah, the, the, the nursery rhyme in Quatermass is terribly memorable. Property, yeah. property, ring, stone, round. Um, I, I, I've known that word for word for 20-odd years. And there is nice discussion in it, again, which connects the folk horror thing, the historical perspective of, like, of the meaning of nursery rhymes and where they come from. I think it is said in the White Mask Conclusion film version, but there's a bit more space for it in the TV one, where he says, I think that these markers, like megaliths, like Stonehenge or Ringstone Rand or whatever. He says there were markers where human beings erected stones to mark places that had become terrible to. And that's quite similar to Quatermass in the Pit, isn't it? Because yes, in that, yeah. the, the spaceship or whatever it is underneath, you know, it causes some psychic reverberations of yeah. negative energy or they they see things or there's poltergeists or there's, you know, uh, they see the future or the past, all that sort of psychic phenomena. You know, they're said to be bad places and it's mm-hmm. called Hobbs End in that film, which is a name for the devil. Spoilers for that film as well. The the aliens have a, a devilish look, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So, so there are some similarities, but they were saying that there's some sort of device like buried which is attracting yes. the beams. And it then- reminds me of Steven Spielberg War of the World, like they were buried, you know, long, long ago, somehow for some reason, we don't know why. I could, you could almost say plot hole. When were those markers? Well, obviously, those markers were sent thousands of years ago. Mm, yeah. Because it's long enough for people to build standing stones to mark them. Why only now is the beam coming and the effects on the, the young people being felt? But mm. I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I didn't mind that. Like you said, you know, it's been affecting them for years. It's it's like with space travel. Obviously, it takes quite a long time for light to reach us and various other things. And yeah. you know, so I, I don't mind the the like the initial signal. Like you said, has taken has affected the youth for years and years and years and and what have you. Uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't mind that too much. But um, but I, I like that they build the stones as a kind of a warning, like an ancient warning, like don't don't come near these areas. Almost because yeah, yeah. some, you know, they've gone well, something a bit weird about these. We're not quite sure, but something not quite right. Yeah, and he's really good at that thinking about things that we've got used to always being there, maybe seeing them in a different way and thinking there might be a different rationale behind them to what yeah. we thought. I do like a good horror movie that takes the ordinary, makes it extraordinary and terrifying. Yes, uh, yeah, that's absolutely one of the nectar-like things in horror. If they get it right, it's purely beautiful. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of horror storytelling tries for that. Hmm. You can, tell, uh, And a lot of it misses the mark. You can tell them it's trying too hard, but when it gets it right... That's kind of what you want, really. The uncanny, you know, the extraordinary inside the ordinary. And I, I, I think again that you know, Neil was uh, like a master at that. There is, there's a theory within it that it might just be a machine just randomly going off. Like there might not be any rhyme or reason behind it. It's just this big thing that we can't mm-hmm. really understand. And and that's that's I think that's why they try and they try and rationalise it like that because they can't picture these kind of beings they can't even fathom they're like completely un- unfathomable 
super beings or godlike beings, which yeah. again, again, I like because I, I think if there was some sort of god, it would would be something that we can like Lovecraftian, like we said, like completely beyond our understanding of any form of life. You know, obviously there's no rules or rhyme to it. It's just is. So I quite like I quite like the mystery to it and the mm-hmm. and the uniqueness. And um, but obviously we get to the end. And lo and behold, guess what? His granddaughter is walking because all the planet people just all of us start start piling towards the ringstone round. And they're like, no, no, don't, don't go too close and don't do this and don't do that. You know, and then uh, I think he gets knocked over, gets knocked out. Um, and oh, a bloody um, Manimal gets killed, doesn't he? Manimal. Yeah, he's, he's killed shockingly. I think Kekalong shoots him dead without even really looking at him. Mm. He just like fires a volley from his machine gun. Mm. And uh, Quatermass doesn't get knocked over. He sees his daughter, his granddaughter. He sees her for the first time and he's so overcome by the emotion of it that he has like a coronary. Yes, now remember. He just falls down. I quite like, uh, was it Dr. Dr. Cap? Yeah, Dr. Cap. Um, He's he's trying to protect them now, the planet people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's trying to stop them. He's going, don't, just don't don't do it. You'll die or, you know. And it's only when these the planet people come that the the beam activates because even the fake, you know, the scientific means where they've tried to create it and stuff, it hasn't worked. But when these people pile in, that's when the beam is activated. And again, you're having this literal heart attack and this heartbreak, literally heartbreaking moment as well, where the daughter actually doesn't go with the rest of the crowd. She sees she sees her grandfather and she goes up to them and she helps him press the button on the bomb to send to send the message. Um, and again, it works and it's quite a quite a loving kind of sacrifice. And I, I really, yeah, I thought I thought it really it did earn that it did earn that in that ending, um, which I'm really glad of. Um, again, I think that John Mills, who's no stranger to this podcast because he was on our Doctor Strange and Doctor Mordred podcast. Uh, oh, I like, didn't know he's in that. Right? Yeah, he's, he's in the Doctor Strange pilot. Yeah, uh, right. Oh he, he's basically the ancient one, but he's he, they make him into kind of a Merlin figure. I think he's called Linmer. I think in really? the, uh, <laughs> very clever, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> we'll have to go back and listen to that one. But um, but I thought I thought he was again Oscar-winning actor doing his absolute best, and and it works. And and again, it was. It was really nice to see. Like, I think obviously a lot of big movies, it, it tends to be a young, dashing hero, doesn't it? Or, you know, youthful people, teenagers, or, you know, like Stranger Things or something like that. But I like that it was the elderly and the older scientists that were like, it's it's a bit, again, going back, relating it back to kind of modern things. It was like when COVID happened and they recruited in retired doctors and nurses and you know it was kind of like that and i thought i thought that's kind of quite an interesting idea and quite you know because obviously i think sometimes like elderly or older generations can be demonized a little bit i think so it was nice to kind of see you know i and i did like i did like some of the stuff where they're like you know they're, they're forgetting things they're not sleeping they're tired or they can't quite keep going the concentration's fading i like when that general turns up and and they're like is, is it okay is that bomb gonna work how what's the yeah. radius how big is it like they're all kind of double checking each other all the time they're like we need to be 100 sure with this because we we won't get another chance because we're really old yes i love that team general it's so simple but you know 
just thump it. Simplest arrangement we could latch up. They just have a big red button, you just hit it. But they're all kind of looking at each other a bit suspiciously. They don't quite trust each other. No. Um, they're, they're making this big sacrifice. I, I find that whole kind of ending quite moving. It's, um, mm. You know, it basically is just quite matching that. They know yeah. that they can't possibly survive if they're just waiting for things to happen and they'll set the bomb off. Mm. They just have a quiet couple of conversations while they're waiting for it. Look at the other versions. And by the way, make it clear for anybody who's listening to this who hasn't seen it but intrigued Mm. the whole series is on Britbox I think it certainly was when I was a member about a year or so ago so so go check it out there in the in the series because you've had the whole kind of subplot with Quasimass meeting all the kind of elderly people who live live underground there's a character called Edna played by Gretchen Franklin who was later famous as Ethel in EastEnders, and she you can see her in the film quite fast conclusion. She's there at the end, she gives him a cup of tea, and that's it. In the, in the TV series, and certainly in the book, where you've got a bit more detail still, she makes him a little packed lunch. Oh. You know, uh, she's like, Right, you're, you're going to have to blow yourself up to save us all. Have a, a flask of tea and a packed lunch. There you go. Bye. And they all go off on, on like the army truck, all these old people just waving as they go off. <laughs> Um, I, I, I think it is kind of beautifully, weirdly downbeat and very moving. And something that I only noticed on this viewing, this is a show and a film that I've watched loads of times over the years. I, I realised recently that it, it is kind of my religion, specifically Quatermass Conclusion um, or, or Quatermass, the fourth one, because I've been... I first watched it when I was a teenager. It was on um, the Sci-Fi Channel back in those analog satellite days, and I taped it and watched it. And unfortunately, I didn't know of the existence of the shorter Quatermass conclusion, or I think I knew about it, but I didn't have any way of getting it. And whenever I tried to get people to watch Quatermass, the series, they would balk at it because it is four hours long, hmm. you know. Um, and now the, the Quatermass conclusion is more available. It's on the DVD and Blu-ray. You know, you can yeah. see the short. There but was it, there was a time where they were like certain DVDs were editing like miniseries into a film, like It and Salem's Lot and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I I never got that. I was like, just just make it. Obviously, they were like, well, we'll sell it as a film. Obviously, but I don't. You know, if it's if it's meant to be, if you're putting it on DVD and it's meant to be a miniseries, just do it as a miniseries. You don't have to. Yeah, you but know, it's how technology has changed as well, like, you know, because until the late 90s, even if DVD was around, which was just coming in, hmm. the main thing they would have been thinking about was we've got to put this on tape. And with tape, it's like you're charged by the inch. Hmm. So it, it, you know, you make the thing shorter, as short as possible. And in fact, the Quasimass uh, uh, series didn't come out on video or DVD for a long time, probably because, you know, big, long, double-play kind of videos were quite rare. But they did release the TV movie version, the short of the movie version, just because you could put that out on one tape, yeah. like, like a movie. Um, so it was weird. So in those I think, days... I think Roger I, Corman had a similar thing. He was like, the perfect length of a movie is 88 minutes because you only have to use one film can. Right. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> Saving some, saving, shaving some more costs there. Good old Coleman. He was a man who knew his stuff, absolutely. Um, 
Uh, there's so much you can say about Coleman and another one I really like is Larry Cohen. He's off topic, but if anybody wants to know that the right attitude to take into to making local films, read about Roger Coleman and read about Larry Cohen. They knew what they were doing. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, so, definitely. So back in today when I wanted to try and get people to watch Quaid's Mask, I couldn't. Nowadays, the shorter version is more available. But on the other hand, because we now live in the age of kind of binging and streaming, people are used to watching stuff which is like 30 hours long. Yeah, I know, you know Str- Stranger Things at the moment, their season, like every episode is the length of a film, I think, something like that. Yeah, so I've heard. I suppose Quake Mass series did lead me to my theory, which is the optimum length of the story on visual story six hours because Quatermass led me to watch Edge of Darkness, which is even better, which is a mid-80s BBC miniseries directed by Martin Campbell, who later went on to make a lot of Bond films. It, we, we covered him and Wizard Month as well. We did uh, Cast a Deadly Spell. Oh, I don't know about that film of his. Okay. Well, you'd, you'd like it. It's uh, noir, noir meets Lovecraft. I have heard, you know, sorry, I have heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah, that was, is that like a TV movie? Yeah, kind of, it was yeah. an HBO, HBO. So it was, yeah, because he obviously he did big TV and then he gradually moved towards movies. And you can, you can borrow the you can borrow the DVD. Oh, thank you, man. That's brilliant. I'd love to see it because the yeah, Edge of Darkness is my number one favorite thing. Really. Although you know, there's obviously huge value in just TV that's kind of endless. I love at the moment. I'm like watching West Wing for the first time and I watch an episode every day and it's just a wonderful feeling that there's hundreds of episodes to come and I can just, you know, bask in that world. But I think in terms of telling a story, if you can do it in 90 minutes, great. But if you it like a movie, but if you want to do it with the depth of like a novel and you really get the feel for the characters and know them, like six hours is kind of perfect. Yeah, I think you can have a danger as well when because obviously the pacing of a TV show is different from the pacing of a film. So I think sometimes when you mush a miniseries together into a... Obviously, with this, it's different because they've they made two distinct versions. They wrote two distinct versions and they shot it. So it's not as kind of haphazard. I know with the Halloween, we I think we talked about the TV versions as well, of one, one and two, and they came back and it, did ex, extra films as well, extra bits. Yeah, of, and you had that thing... In those days, which makes sense, where whereby where movies would often have extra bits inserted to make them longer for TV, so you could have more adverts. Um, and, it, and it, if they didn't shoot stuff especially for it, they would just find scenes that the filmmakers had cut out because they were not necessary or not very good. And just put them back in. You know, there's like a really long version of the first Superman film. Oh, is that, that um, the one where he runs the gauntlet? Uh, with the machine guns. Yeah. All that all that yeah, yeah. That was later on, many years later, the director kind of said that was a great scene and he released like a director's approved version with that in. But mm. I think there's already been a TV version where the director is not even consulted. It's just like editors in the TV studio go, what can we get? What can we get? <laughs> Dump it all in. So going back to Quatermass, I'm really mm. glad that you liked the ending and found it moving because I know that some people find it sugary and sentimental. Having such a gloomy film, like mm. arguably gloomy film and kind of dour and, you know, depressing. You've got you've got a red and a blue gang. You've got Bloods and Crips and you've got... You know, you've got like the death of the death of the um, the district operator or whatever her name was. 
Like that's yes, yes. that's really disturbing because she just kind of leans into the camera and her eyes yes. and the eyes just roll into the back of her head and it's just like yeah. Jesus Christ! And you hear her dying breath, like, and it's just <laughs> and then he shakes her and then and she's like right up against the camera, almost so it's blurring. But you're just yeah. like it's almost like she's leaning on you almost, um, which is really disturbing. And then obviously we have at Wembley, which I I think I read that it was supposed to be Stonehenge actually, where that. That particular beam comes down. I, I think um, they certainly went wanted Stonehenge in it, but yeah. I, I, I always assumed that they meant Stonehenge to be ringstone round, and they mm. couldn't get Stonehenge, so they yeah. rewrote it. But I think Wembley, because they would have wanted a big gathering place. Yeah, and maybe that would make. I think the stuff in Wembley Stadium is spectacular, kind of post-apocalypse stuff. And I'm kind of sad that that is dated now because obviously Wembley Stadium no yeah. longer exists. Yeah, true. But, you know, just those scenes with like thousands of crazed hippies mm. and, and and surrounded by body armor wearing militarized police with machine guns. It's great kind of post apocalypse stuff. That yeah, uh, it, again, it's a bit Robocop. The city's going to hell and kind of author- positive authority responding with maximum prejudice. I, think it's, mm. I mean, it's quite a brief scene and not a lot yeah. in, in a way, but. But just the, the the power of that, and going back to the Annie thing, yeah, she dies, which is horrible enough. But then a few minutes later, the beam comes down onto the stadium. Oh god! So yeah. when Quatermass goes back to her car just to look at the body, he finds that she's turned to dust. Mm. The even the beam has even taken away her corpse. It's like there's not even anything left. Of her. I, think, I think you see her glasses, don't you, or something? That's, that's like... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I thought that was good. I'd... I will say it does like when you when you look at Quatermass's suit, it does look like he's covered in something um, <laughs> something uh, yeah. a bit disgusting. You know, if it, it's, it's like it's like he's just you know an elephant's come and 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 done his business. You know, it's touched himself in it. An elephant's touched himself in a very intimate way, and he's gone right all over him, all over Quatermass. Um, and I was yes, exactly true. Yeah. So uh, so I, yeah, I I did I I. <laughs> I kind of like the little girl aspect with the burns and stuff and the, I don't know if it's calcification or whatever you want to call it, but I quite like that. And then again, they kind of have this almost exorcist moment or poltergeist moment where she she levitates. Yeah. Levitates and then hilariously just explodes. (laughs) (laughs) Just this little girl just exploding. Um, It's just bizarre, but I I kind of enjoy it. Uh, It's really savage and strange and kind of, one of those things where, yeah, it's horrifying on one level, but again, a bit like with the stuff in Halloween 3, you can kind of imagine Nigel laughing about it as mm. he's right. Yeah, I'm just going to yeah. blow this kid up. Because, <laughs> um, you know, uh, and she's quite a sweet character. And she brings mm. out the best in people around her to try and protect her. And, and also, I, something I found really moving, this is a girl who's kind of survived a visitation of the beam and they find her and she's kind of, she's alive but she's been blinded and she's, she's kind of covered in dust and they determine to take her into London where she can be seen by a doctor. And they're carrying her out of the house to put her in the van and they've wrapped her in blankets. Joe Cap's daughters are there watching her being carried out and one of them walks towards the mum and says, Mummy, Mummy, she's got my blankets. Yes. Uh, there's quite a lot of little moments like that. Um, one of the taglines that Neil used in writing publicity for 
this series was that it was science fiction with a human face, and it, and which makes a lot of sense if you think you know this is the late seventies, this is post Star Wars, special effects are starting to rule everything, and he's like, yeah, we'll make a big budget TV series, science fiction series, but I'm going to concentrate on the kind of emotional aspects of it and going back to the very ending where you find it moving something i'd never noticed before properly even when i've seen this loads of times Quatermass and cat are alone waiting for the thing to come and they're getting the bomb ready and they're just ready to press the button and this kind of beautifully british to put up a lip yeah we're just going to wait an hour and then it'll come and we'll blow ourselves up Quatermass puts a photograph of his daughter next to the detonator sorry his granddaughter next mm. to the detonator like that's the most important thing for him it's like yeah i didn't find you but i tried and i'm doing this for you and and the very kind of ending where he has the cardiac arrest and she helps him the switch and helps him press it some people have read that that is it's either you can either read it as bad writing because she doesn't know what she's what he's doing there she doesn't know that it's a bomb why would she help him press it you could, or you could read it maybe it's, it's kind of cynically undermines the moving of it because she is so lost in her kind of planet person reverie that she doesn't really know what she's doing and therefore, you know, she doesn't know she's blowing herself up. But on the other hand, right next to the button she helped impress, there is a picture of her, you know, and she must see that. And I don't know whether she has a yeah. conscious thought doing this for me, whatever it is, but it's a clear sign that he has been thinking about her all this time you know and, and again it's, it's i mean if you dan if you together. walked over and you saw a giant red button <laughs> what would you think it was for and, <laughs> well, to be fair, and, and would you be tempted to touch it <laughs> i probably would i mean I think, yeah i think i think i'd be like yeah why not boop Someone told me not. To, it's red. Someone's told me not to touch it, so I have to touch it now. Um, I, well, she, she's obviously not going with the crowd, so I think she has maybe some wider understanding, or maybe her brain is expanded with all this sig- these signals coming in, and she see because they do seem like almost in a trance sometimes. So maybe she has mm-hmm. a greater awareness. Maybe you know her brain is expanded that she has this kind of psychic phenomena, like in the pit where she can maybe read his mind or know what the intention is. You know, you know she might know that he's dying and what the plan is. Who knows? But um, but I, I, it still worked for me as, as, a, as an ending. And again, yeah, I think you can you can argue that some of the things in the film don't don't work perfectly. Um, but I, I quite enjoyed it. I can see why you like it and I can see why you like this character and, uh, and Nigel Neal's writing. And I definitely think it's... It's worth. I think it's worth seeing along with all the other films and or TV series, whichever, or read the books or or any of the books you've mentioned about Nigel Neal. I think are definitely worth seeking out if you like this type of thing. If you like, you know, heady sci-fi and interesting ideas, and you know, being a you know the, those kind of challenging political, social, economic things that the Nigel Neal's trying to say. And again, I was thinking again, is this like, oh, all these youngsters, I don't like them. I don't understand them. <laughs> you know, I, I was, you know, I started, I was thinking about that, but but there's there's too many touchstones in the film for it to be that simple, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've got the young kids uh, from Dr. Cap. We've got him searching for his granddaughter. Like, end, end of the day, these elderly people are doing it 
and saving yeah. the world for the young. Yeah, because and, yeah, there is no future for them. No, right. absolutely not. So, and, so, th- so that's who they're doing it for. Yes, they've noticed this, and maybe they feel somewhat to blame again. This, the, I mean, like even Disney now is dealing a lot of the the story of generational trauma that carries on down the line. Is you know this this idea is is kind of it's very much in you know those films like Encanto or Coco, um, in kids' films. Like, like this yeah. is definitely not a kids' film, but the the idea that idea is is inherent to all of us and you know parents you know whatever you feel about your your parents or your family and what have you there is always going to be that that disconnect like the older you get the more conservative you get the more kind of afraid of the world and you don't necessarily understand it and obviously you can develop mental conditions or phobias so like look at look at um look at Winston Churchill he started off as a liberal then, yeah, then he yeah. then he was Labour, and then he was Conservative, which is kind <laughs> of sort of how you know politically, like elderly people, kind of go inside. Kind of the story of everyone, that yeah, you know, exactly. In a way, yeah. in but. a way. So yeah, there's a there's a lot. I think there's a lot to like uh, about this film. I, I would, you know, I'd be interested to watch the TV series. Maybe not right now, but um, hmm. I, I might I might dip back into it at some point. Um, yeah, it, I would recommend leaving it a while, which is mm. what I do. You know, I never watch the great thing, a good thing about Crazy Maths as a whole is that every story there's more than one version of it. Mm. You never have to watch the same one twice in a row. You can, can alternate the different versions, and, and therefore they always feel a bit surprising. Uh, you, I think it, you're right as well when you were saying they they all feel like a one-off. There's not there's there's some continuity between them, but not it's not it's almost like a Bond film. Like there's it's not. Mm. There's not a strict continuity, but you kind of understand that that happened in the last adventure and some, well, that, somewhat. Yeah, and I think mostly in the first two, especially, you know, because it's the same actor and the same, you know, they're very aware of the first one. Well, this brings me to an interesting question that I was going to ask you. Do you think if, I think it's an interesting question anyway, you may not, but do you think if you had not seen the earlier Quasimax films you would still have enjoyed before. would you recommend it to someone who's not seen the others hmm not sure uh not really thought about it, like, it that is a good question because i don't have an answer um so i think i think so i think as a, as a one-off you can still enjoy it i think mm-hmm. but uh, i i think i quite like his kind of evolution almost and his mm-hmm. the way he's approaches these different situations uh and I think everyone has played him in a slightly different way, but it still feels right um, yeah. in its own in its own way. I've got, of course, of the versions I've seen, the Hammer and this yeah. version as well. Um, I, there's 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 a there is a continuity there, even in the performance and the writing and the the uh, stylistic choices as well. But yeah, I think I think um, I think it adds to it. It certainly adds to. There's more resonance if you. Because it's that mythic thing of the, the person who was the hero coming back and and be and not not having a glorious return, but actually having kind of fallen from grace. More, I guess it's more powerful if you know about the past of the character. I'd say it's a bit like something like Logan. So like, right. like the, the Hugh Jackman Wolverine Swan song. Yeah, which I, I love. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's an amazing post-apocalyptic western. Um, you know, there's there's lots to love about that film, and I think that that is still a great film on its own. 
but knowing all the stuff that's come before, the best and worst X-Men films, but knowing that this character and being familiar with them and and loving them and caring for them and and watching them fail and succeed and all that, I think it just does add something that it might not have necessarily on its own. But yeah, I do I do think you can get something out of it if you don't know about the past, Nigel Neal necessarily, those past films or serials. I think there is definitely something unique and interesting um when you were saying like mad max i was like yeah they definitely saw mad max uh before they made this right yeah. i was like wow yep yeah, yep yeah, very mad max um but but then it's kind of unique as well it's very rare that you get like a post-apocalyptic like english movie like quintessentially mm, yeah, english yeah. as well because this is quintessentially english it's not like trying to be an american film or anything it's you know it still has that that english feel to it which is is totally unique for something that's post apocalyptic because we we don't really tend to do that here really and and i think now if we did it it would just be all cgi and you know that sort of well, stuff I, I suppose it's because the era of time when post apocalyptic movies and literature really bit was when the british film industry was kind of falling apart so, yeah. so there are no hammer films that do that. And following Hammer, there were no films in really Britain really for a while, hardly. There are films made of kind of semi-apocalyptic British novels like James Herbert's The Rats and John Christopher's The Death of Grass. But The Rats is a, a Canadian film that The Death of Grass became an American film. You know, there's an international appeal to apocalyptic fiction and apocalyptic cinema, but British cinema didn't seem to be able to grasp it or make yeah. something productive of it, which is why it's clearly... Maybe, maybe, uh, it's that, maybe it's that stiff upper lip of, like, we can't imagine things going this poorly in Britain. We're fine. Well, Society will never fail. I do love the way in the film of the Vendetta, they kind of go, all the other countries have fallen, only Britain soldiers <laughs> on. Um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, the fact that, in a way, I wish that this movie, Quatermass Conclusion, had had wide theatrical release around the world that was intended, because it would have been the one, the one that got through, uh, and and gave a British statement on that kind of genre. But the, maybe the fact that it didn't shows why British cinema didn't do that; just never had the, the, the infrastructure or the confidence to put out that kind of material. But I do think it's a shame. No, but the no. film exists, and so. It does. Why, it does. I encourage people to watch it. Yeah, it's a very it's very unique. It, it mixes a lot of those things, a lot of those genres, those ideas, and there is there is a lot to take in. And and you know, I, I, again, I enjoyed it. I don't think all of it works all of the time. You no. know? Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are others, but there's definitely a bit where you can see that it's a condensed version of the TV. And mostly the film gets away with that very well, but the end where it's just a really strange hard cut and suddenly Joe Cap, who for the previous half an hour has just been some wandering guy on his own, suddenly wakes up and goes out with tent and the army's all around and Quatermass is there. And and Cap's first thing is, where's Quatermass? <laughs> As if he's a man who he's seen in recent times, you yeah. know. He must be um, nearby. Yeah, I, I definitely noticed that. But I just like I just chalked it up to him having a big bonk on his head. Um, right. I was just like, he's he's he just happens to be right. Uh or maybe it's maybe he's that young that again he can sense things because he's a youngster. <laughs> he's a young man, uh he says. Uh 
<laughs> but no, I, I, I've, I've really liked um, digging into to Nigel Neal. It's nice to celebrate uh, his centenary, um, even if it is a bit late. Um, it's been nice to, uh, it's been nice to have you back on the podcast as well. And I'd like to say as well, his birthday was in April, so we've still got like three quarters of the year. Left. Oh, there we go. Still his centenary, as far as I'm concerned. By the way, I need to thank you, Dan, because you uh, pointed me on Facebook towards the fact that because it was his birthday week, they were selling cheap DVDs of Nigel Neal dramas at network.com. <laughs> yes. So I went and bought some, which I've still not watched, but um, I'm, I'm very glad to have them. Yeah, so. I saw I saw that and immediately I thought of you because, again, we talked about this and we talked about, um, you know, you've always talked about Nigel Neal in some capacity and and the, and uh, and your love for him. And that's why uh, of all the people to talk about Nigel Neal, I had to have you on to to talk about him. And, and I'm really glad I have because, again, I didn't know anything about him. I've not read any of his books. Um, you know, and you know, does he does he kind of measure up to a lot of his contemporaries like the Ray Bradburys and and others? Well, he's not a literary writer, really. He literally mm. only wrote two books. Uh, he wrote that collection of short stories when mm. he was very young, and he wrote the novelization of Quatermass. Right. That's it. Mm. Everything else he wrote was for TV uh, or film. You know, in a way, he was a strange example that he was a specialist. Um, you know, that was his that was his medium that he worked with. But some critics like Kim Newman have argued that he is the only person, the only writer who worked mainly in TV, deserves a stature comparable to like Ray Bradbury and, and not just people in, in the science fiction genre, people like J.G. Ballard and, uh, and kind of great novelists like that. Um, I mean, he was a brilliant writer of prose. Uh, but the Quatermass novel is brilliant, and I've just started reading the Martha Kane stories, and they're wonderful. And it, he did say that he'd like to write more of that. I think he just got side, not sidetracked, but he, he's put on that path to TV and film, and that's what he, he learned and knew about. Um, and that's why he was such a wonderful adapter of other people's work, you know. So he, he, he wrote an adaptation of Wuthering Heights. He wrote an adaptation of 1984, like I say, The Woman in Black. He just had a, an amazing vision of how material could be changed to fit the screen kind of beautifully. And as I, I said earlier, you know, he, he worked that out by doing it, by being kind of the first person almost who had to work that out. And he never lost that ability. The, most of the other books that he's published are books of scripts. So in the 50s and early 60s, you know, when you didn't get repeats on TV and you didn't, obviously there was no home media to release anything to, you quite often got scripts published for people to read. So all the first three Quatermass scripts were, were published. And in fact, the scripts book of the first story, the Quatermass Experiment, is still the best way to experience it because it was a live drama and they only recorded the first two episodes it doesn't exist. The mm. film version is very different, which Nigel Neal didn't write. So, you know, the, the, the script is there. Um, and then Waitermas 2 was recorded, but I've, and I've read the script. That was well, like, wonderful. And, and, and the bit was recorded. Um, so, so basically, he wrote two novels and a load of script books. And, and that was kind of it. But uh, I mean, there's a quote that I'll, I'll get from the introduction to We Are the Martians. Is actually from his obituary when he died in 2006. A writer called Tim Lucas said about the, the novel, the novelization of Quatermass. He says, 
largely on the strength of this novel and, of course, the Quatermass series of stories as a whole, I've always regarded him as one of Britain's greatest literary visionaries on a par with J.G. Ballard. I can't say it better than that, really. Uh, no, I, I, you know what, Dan? I think that's a wonderful place to finish uh, with a, a lovely obituary for the man. So, uh, yes, I think that was hearing your defence for this and, and hearing your love for Nigel Neal. Uh, before we finish, I uh, just want to ask you, where can all the lovely people find all of your work, find you online, and your very good podcast? Bless you, sir. Well, uh, my podcast, and now the podcast starts, is on uh, most of the usual podcatchers, but our website is andnowpodcast.com. We started off as perhaps the first podcast ever to be solely devoted to the films of Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, but we later mutated into perhaps the millionth podcast to be devoted to basically anything and everything within the genre of horror, and therefore we have a really random and wide range of topics to cover um, we have a, a bunch of very uh, I, I think uh, um, apart from myself very wonderful hosts including occasionally the spider Dan himself uh, oh, joins us and, too kind, um, too kind and, uh, I'm, I'm quite proud of it we, we, it's not exactly regular it's not exactly every week but there's lots of episodes and we will soon be doing more I'm also occasionally can be heard on other podcasts such as Very British Horror, Have Very British Horror, which is what it says, wonderful discussions about particularly British horror subjects. And also uh, I'm on the We Made This Network, for whom I write reviews for their website, wmtnetwork.com or we made this network.com, not sure. Occasionally turn up on their podcasts, uh, such as the Doctor Who-based podcast called the TARDIS crew. So, yeah, I can be found in most of those places. And I've got a couple of writing credits coming up that I wish I could tell you about. Ooh, but, exciting. But the, only re- the only reason I can't is because they're not 100% definite yet, so I don't want to jinx <laughs> myself. That's um, fine. That's fine. I can't. I can't wait to uh, hear about it and read them as well. Um, I'm. I'm very much uh, looking forward to that. Um, but yes, I'll. I'll leave all the links in the in the show notes so people can find you in those various places. Uh, I've also linked our, our previous episodes to my website, so there you can find that in the collaboration section if you want to find it there. Quick way to find them all: just click on the links, and it'll take you directly to the podcast. So oh, yes. yes, and um, just uh, one final thing to say hmm. about podcasts: we will have a quite a mass episode coming up. It's been delayed a bit because our friend Howard uh, really wants to be involved with it, and he hasn't been able to. Well, he hasn't been available uh, recently, um, and it's got an interview on it with. The British horror novelist Simon Clark is a wonderful oh. writer, and he's a particular Nigel Neal fan. And he is the guy who said to me, "I know you love the TV stuff and whatever, but you've got to read the stories and the scripts." Um, and then that, so he came on our podcast, particularly to talk about the literary stuff. So hopefully that will occur later in the year. I don't know exactly when, but within the centenary, I hope. Yeah, of course. Well, I, when when that does get released, I'll I'll share it, and you know, we can have a you can you can reference this if you want on that show, um, and link it back and whatever. But yeah, go check out. Uh, and now the podcast starts. I can't even speak anymore. We've been speaking so much, I've, I've, my teeth are falling out. I'm, get, I'm getting old. <laughs> 
I'm getting the elderly. Oh, these youngsters. Oh, they're not, going off to another planet. Not as bad as me, Dan, <laughs> honestly. Like, gee, yeah, you, should, you should see the amount of what vocal warm-ups and, and, and your exercises have to do every day to be able to speak coherently. Wow. Okay. Any, any degree of time. Look, I'm 41, so this, maybe this will come to you, or maybe I am weirdly infirm. When it talks to my GP about it. Yeah, I, I do have some jaw issues, but it's mostly that it never stays shut. I think that's my problem. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> Well, that is certainly not the worst problem. Though. No, well, the, there's a reason these podcasts go on long, and there's a reason it's called Prattle World. Uh, <laughs> There's, there's, there, there was method in my madness before I even started. So there you go. Uh, wow. <laughs> a man who um, knows himself. I know, do. I, to I, be respected. I, I know my flaws, certainly. Uh, so you can find me on uh, Facebook at Secret Balls, Twitter at Dan underscore Balls, Instagram Spider Dan at Spider Dan Secret Balls. Review, like, share, subscribe, comment, etc. And don't forget to use the hashtag prepare for prattle. See what I mean? Uh, when you interact with us. If you want to join the Pratalian and to be briefed in full on the Secret Balls, swing over to Prattleworld at spiderdanandsecretballs.com. That's B-O-R-E-S. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon. I am Jack's Musing, Simon Cotton, Paul Meller, Max Byrne, Scott Hodgson, Mike Burton, Angry Andy Reviews, Tonya Todd, and Tony Farina uh, for their continuing donations. It is very much appreciated and helps Prattle World keep on turning. And if you ever find yourself in a position to help the podcast, please consider it. Uh, thanks again, Dan. This has been eye-opening, and I hope it is as eye-opening to uh, everybody else who listens. Uh, but I've really enjoyed uh, talking uh, uh, some Nigel Neal. Uh, and I, ne- I kneel before his altar. Oh, that's wonderful, sir. I, I think that's a marvellous note. It's, it's been a pleasure, Dan. It's been an absolute thrill. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Okay, goodbye, everybody. Bye.